If you can tell by the sound of my voice, I have been sick all week. My wife is also sick. It's my fault. Uh, and our youngest is sick, and they're at home right now. And so, love you guys. Sorry you're not, you're not here. Um, I've got water with me. If, if for some reason I finish this, someone just throw water at me or something like that, we'll be fine. I don't think we'll, we'll be there, though. Um, I am so excited about what we're going to talk about today. So if, if, you're, if you're just joining us, if this is your first time, we started something that we've never done before called the whole story. We're spending the rest of our year going through the entire story of the Bible. We've broken the story of scripture down into 14 different series. And from now through December, we're going through all of it. And so if you're someone who's like, I don't really know scripture. I struggle sometimes to read the Bible. I want to, I open it up and go, what is this all about? This year is going to help you so much. Now, last Sunday, we started the very first series called The Human Project. We're looking at some of the first interactions that God has with people, with, with us in the Bible. And we learn so much about God and we learn so much about ourselves through these interactions. If we're gonna have a, a healthy relationship with God, we gotta know ourselves, we've gotta know him. And we learn so much through these. And so Genesis chapter one, verse 26, God says, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. And the Hebrew word for human beings is Adam. That's all of us, Adam, A-D-A-M. We are all human beings. And these are the two main characters of the entire story of the Bible, God and us. And here's why that's really meaningful. This is not just a story. This is not just a collection of stories. This is your story. The story of the Bible is your story because you are one of the main characters, believe it or not. It's the story of, of God and humanity of all of us, the lengths that God will go to know us, the things that he will do to show us who he really is, what he's really like. And so as we read these stories, we're, we're learning our own history in so many different ways, and it's really fascinating. And so last week we talked about the story of the first couple of humans that show up, Adam, not Adam, but, but Adam with a capital A, and Eve, and things just went great, like perfectly. No problems, <coughs> no issues, excuse me. No, things don't, things don't go smoothly for very long. Because human beings are really good. Like we are, we're really good at a lot of things. Like we gotta be able to give ourselves props when we, when we need them. We're good at so many things, but we are like, we're super good at messing up. And I don't mean that in like a self-deprecating way. Like I think it'd actually be really freeing if we all just admitted like, I'm so good at messing things up. It's a gift, it's a talent. Like you give me something perfect, I'll mess it up. That's why parenting is so hard because when you have a child, those of you with, with kids, you know this, um, they trust you like implicitly, you can have a newborn baby. You can throw that child in the air and they're just like, yeah, this is great. You know, seven years later, the trust is broken. It is gone. They don't think you know anything anymore. Like how, it's like, how did that happen? Well, we mess things up. We're always playing catch up. And in reality, what human beings often do is we have this tendency, maybe it's partly because we were made in the image of God to be like him. Sometimes we maybe. Uh, overstep that, and instead of trying to be like God, we just try to be God, and we decide that we know what's best, and we don't really care, if we're honest, we don't really care what God has said, because at the end of the day, we're gonna do what we think we ought to do, what makes us happy, what makes us feel right, and that's what Adam and Eve did. We've all done it, and things go pretty poorly. People decided that we would ignore what God had said, and we would do what is right in our own eyes, choose what looks good to us, even if it's the very thing that God has said to stay away from, and that begins this vicious cycle. And so the very next story that we get to read is in Genesis chapter four, you've got Cain and Abel. Cain's this older brother. He gets jealous of his younger brother. 
And then God actually says this to Cain. Genesis chapter four, verse seven, he says, watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. It's the first time in the Bible we have this mention of the word sin. And here it's mentioned not just as this thing that we can do, it's this inner force working within us, trying to sabotage our lives. And God says, watch out. This thing, sin, it's working in you. It's trying to, to mess everything up. You've got you've to beat it or it will subdue you, control you. It will ruin you. And Cain, unfortunately, he doesn't listen. He gives in. He does what he wants to do. And again, we have brokenness. He kills his brother Abel. He tries to cover it up. And that's what happens every time you see people sin. Adam and Eve, Cain, it's like, I messed up. Let me try to hide it. It never works. We're overcome with guilt and shame and fear and all kinds of things. And God steps in and, and he both gives a consequence because there's always a consequence for sin. That's just the way the world works. But he doesn't stop at the consequence. He always gives, we talked about this last Sunday, a covering. And so when Adam and Eve messed up, they were naked. They felt ashamed. They went and got some fig leaves. That's the best they could think of to cover their shame. And God doesn't just expose them. Sometimes we have a fear, I think, of God exposing our shame. Maybe we even hide from him, we run from him. Maybe some of you have spent whole years of your lives running from him because of your shame and God does not expose their shame, God covers their shame. He creates clothing for them and says, here, wear this. I don't want you to walk around in shame. God doesn't just give a consequence, he gives a covering. With, with Cain, there's a consequence. God says, man, you've gotta leave. You can't be in this place anymore because of what you've done. And Cain's afraid other people will find out what he's done and kill him. And so God covers him. He actually puts some kind of marking on Cain. We don't know what it is that, that's a symbol to everyone else. Don't mess with this guy. You know, he's under my protection. God doesn't just give a consequence. He gives a covering. We see his mercy and we see his love, even in the midst of, of justice. And that becomes a theme in the early stories of the Bible. But let's keep moving on because, you know, Adam and Eve, rough start. Cain and Abel, that's not good. But maybe, maybe people just stumble out of the gate a little bit, but then we figure it out and we get things right on track, you know? Maybe, maybe it's like a sports team that has a really rough start to a game. Coach calls a timeout, says, guys, what are you doing? What's going on? They come back out triumphant and they just execute perfectly from this point on. No, that is not what happens. So let's, let's continue as we're breezing through this Genesis chapter six, this is when things get, things get real. Okay. The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. So the Lord was sorry he had ever made them and put them on the earth, broke his heart. And the Lord said, I will wipe this human race I have created from the face of the earth. Yes, I will destroy every living thing, all the people, all the large animals, all the small animals that scurry along the ground, and even the birds of the sky. I'm sorry I ever made them. But, this is, it's a good thing that this is here. Noah found favor with the Lord. Noah saw that the earth had become corrupt and now, sorry, now God saw that the earth had become corrupt and was filled with violence. God observed all this corruption in the world. For everyone on earth was corrupt. And God said to Noah, I've decided to destroy all living creatures for they have filled the earth with violence. Yes, I will wipe them all out along with the earth. Build a large boat from cypress wood and waterproof it with tar inside and out. Then construct decks and stalls throughout its interior. Make the boat 450 feet long, 75 feet wide and 45 feet high. 
Leave an 18-inch opening below the roof all the way around the boat. Put the door on the side and build three decks inside the boat, lower, middle, and upper. Look, I'm about to cover the earth with a flood that will destroy every living thing that breathes. Everything on earth will die, but I will confirm my covenant with you. So enter the boat, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring a pair of every kind of animal, a male and a female, into the boat with you to keep them alive during the flood. Pairs of every kind of bird, every kind of animal, every kind of small animal that scurries along the ground will come to you to be kept alive and be sure to take on board enough food for you and your family and for all the animals. So Noah did exactly as the Lord had commanded him. Genesis 7 continues, Noah did everything as the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood covered the earth. Excuse me. (coughs) I said I was sick. I said it. (laughs) He went on board the boat to escape the flood, he and his wife and his sons and their wives. And with them were all kinds of various animals, those approved for eating and for sacrifice and those that were not, along with all the birds and the small animals that scurry along the ground. They entered the boat in pairs, male and female, just as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came and covered the earth. (coughs) Excuse me. I thought I was gonna be so much better than this. One second. (coughs) Just pray, it's fine. All right, anyone here grow up in church? Just out of curiosity, like when you were a kid? Anyone grow up with like, you have mental pictures of like the pictures of Bible stories in like children's Bibles and books and stuff like that? Anyone at all have that? Do you remember how happy the pictures of Noah and the flood were? It's like, it's, it's like a Disney cruise, but with animals. You know what I'm talking about? It's crazy, right? Like if you think back to those pictures, it's this like little boat and there's like a hippo smiling on the outside next to an elephant and a tiger and there's like Noah. And so like little kids will grow up in church because we teach the Bible this way. We, we don't actually teach the Bible this way here. We're really big on let's teach it for real and trust kids with, with more than maybe we give them credit for sometimes. But if you grew up reading the Bible like that, that's what was told to you. And then, you know, someone maybe asks you as a kid, what's your favorite story in the Bible? You're like, I love the story of Noah and the ark because of all the animals. I've never heard an adult say my favorite story in the Bible is the story of Noah and the ark. You know, because of all the death and destruction. It's just so great. This actually becomes, this becomes a really difficult story for a lot of people. In fact, for some people, this becomes kind of like a crisis of faith type of story. Especially maybe if you grew up being taught a version of it that isn't the actual full version. And then all of a sudden you're opening up the Bible and you're reading this and it's like, uh, no, like God, uh, I don't like this. There's, there's kind of weird stuff in this story and we can get tripped up on it. And so I wanna, I wanna address that if that's okay today. I wanna take a few minutes. Now, maybe you're here and you're like, I'm fine with the story of Noah and the flood. In fact, I think flood should happen more often. Maybe you're like that, like calm down, buddy, okay? God actually says, I'm not gonna do that again. All right, so don't get your hopes up. Like, but some of us, maybe you were at a place of, of peace where we're like, you know, I can read stories like this and it doesn't bother me at all. But I will tell you this, I've, I've met so many people over the years that it's stories like this that really, they have a hard time reconciling how this fits with a loving, kind, merciful God. And it becomes a tripping up point. It becomes a stumbling block. And maybe it's not you personally, but it might be someone that you know. It might be one of your children one day. If you have kids, it might be a friend, a brother, someone you're trying to lead to Jesus and have a conversation with. And they read that and go, explain this. Like, it's important, I think, that we treat this stuff with a level of of seriousness and depth so that we have a really, really confident heart when it comes to following God. So I I wanna address some of the 
the things that are hard about this story, but I want to keep the big picture in mind. So with that, with that in mind, I'm actually for the first time going to address this box that I brought on stage that some of you detail-oriented people are like, why has he not talked about this box yet? Okay, so this is a puzzle that I bought for my wife uh, for Christmas. It wasn't the only gift that I got her. I want you guys to know. I also, uh, is like, you bought her a puzzle? That's what you got her? Here, here's some work to do. Um, Actually, my other gift was uh, gardening stuff, which I guess is work to do. But she loves to garden, so I got her these custom-built planter boxes. I did not custom-build them. <laughs> no, I paid someone to do that. Uh, but it still counts. Now I can say as a man, oh, yes, these are custom-built by someone else. But I bought those for her, but she loves puzzles. And this, if, this is the image on it. Um, it's this, like, quaint little bookstore. I don't think it's a real bookstore. I think it's, a, you know, just an imagined, an imagined bookstore. But I will tell you this. I saw this, and I was like, that is my wife. If my wife, if I was walking with my wife somewhere and we saw that bookstore, I would just go, well, I gotta figure out what I'm gonna do for the next three hours of my life. Because Megan would say, I love you, but goodbye. And she would get a coffee and she would go into that place and she would stay there. And when I saw this picture, I thought that is like my wife's version of heaven on earth. And she loves puzzles. So I bought it for her. But if you've ever put a puzzle together, and let's just be honest, how many of you have done that? You've put a puzzle together. I don't care if it's a 10-piece puzzle with you, like a child preschool puzzle. Some of you have never put a puzzle. You've never put, okay, well, let me explain how puzzles work. <laughs> in that box is that picture, but not like you might think. It's in a billion little pieces. And the thing about puzzles, especially big puzzles, is that if you just focus on the individual pieces and you don't know the big picture, you're going to be very confused. You know, if you looked at these pieces, I just picked four of the pieces out. You would never look at those pieces without familiarizing yourself with the big picture and have any idea what it's about. You would be very confused. It would never lead you to consider what the beautiful picture might actually be. You'd be lost. And a lot of people read scripture that way. It's very easy for us to, to pick out little pieces here and there and read scripture in such a way that we forget the big picture. And we get very confused at certain little moments in the story and all of a sudden we're like, I don't, I don't know about this because we're not seeing the big picture. But that doesn't happen when you put a puzzle together as long as you're looking at the box. You go, oh yeah, this, this piece, it doesn't, doesn't look particularly interesting. It doesn't maybe even look that beautiful, but I see where it fits. I see where it fits and it's a necessary component to a much bigger story. The big picture of scripture without doubt, is the fact that we have a God who is just and righteous and he will not allow this beautiful earth that he's created to devolve into chaos. He won't let that happen. But whatever amount of, of wrath he may have, which he does have, the Bible many times says that God has wrath, but the Bible says that God is love. So the big picture of scripture is that yes, he is righteous, yes, he is just, yes, he will make all things right, yes, he is right in his ability to judge the earth, but his love and his kindness is overwhelming, overwhelmingly above everything. And the story is ultimately a story of redemption and beauty. But sometimes when we read certain stories, especially certain stories in the Old Testament, you kind of miss that. If you're like hyper-focused on it, it's like you're looking at one piece of a puzzle and you forget the big picture. Now, I don't just wanna say that to gloss over, like now that I've said that, hey, I used a fun little metaphor of a puzzle and now I can just skip the hard stuff and not talk about it. No, no, let's, let's, let's talk for a few minutes about some of the hard details of the story of Noah and then I wanna get again to really focusing on that big picture. Is that okay with you guys? Like you could say no, because you're, you're already here. Like, it's not really a democracy, I guess, I don't know. Um, all right, so, so let's, let's start with a couple things. 
Two, two of the biggest things that I have heard trip people up in the story of Noah are the fact that people apparently lived a really long time. Like, anyone else notice that? It's like when Noah was 600 years old, and you're like, mm, what? Excuse me? That's got to be a typo. I don't know, it must have not had like a spell check or whatever feature back then. You know, like the Bible actually, if you read it, like Noah, 600 years old, Noah's grandfather is a man named Methuselah. And the Bible says he lived 969 years. And so maybe you've, you've read stuff like that. Maybe you're new to the Bible and you're new to this whole church thing. You're like, nah, I'm out. It's crazy. It's fairy tale stuff. I knew it. Not off. You read the early stories of the Bible, people are apparently living a really long time. Like a really long time. Now that stops after the flood, actually. After the flood, we see people living shorter and shorter and shorter until eventually their lifespan just looks like, like ours today. But in these early stories of the Bible, people are living hundreds of years. And for a long time, that was a big like, stumbling block in a lot of conversations I would have with a lot of people. And it kind of was for me too, because I don't, I want to pretend like I'm smart. You know, I don't want to believe in something that's, <clears throat> that's stupid and foolish. So is this stupid and foolish? And, and what I found is no. Actually, I have no problem whatsoever anymore believing that people could have lived that long. Some people say, oh, it's just a myth. It's just like, you know, mythological stuff. It's stories. They're, they're taking a lot of liberty. I'm actually super comfortable with the idea of people having lived that long. And let me explain to you why. Sharks. Let's talk about sharks for a second. It's a super smooth transition. Um, this is a common picture of like, a, this is what you picture a shark. This is Jaws. This is the great white shark. Now, I've said this before. I don't need to go into detail. Pictures like this clearly indicate for us why we should not go in the ocean. The ocean is filled with monsters. We don't belong there. That is what God put in the water. Like, don't go in the ocean. Jesus walked on top of the water. Moses parted the sea. Jonah's the only character in the Bible that gets in the water and it goes really poorly. So just stay out of the ocean, all right? Stay away, because it's a monster, right? Do you know the, the average lifespan of a great white shark? I don't know why you would, but anyone wanna just yell something out? Hey, 600 years, no, that would be, that'd be terrifying, right? 600-year-old Jaws, how many people have you eaten? Like, oh my goodness. Seven years, okay, it's, it's 50 to 70 years, right? So that could be like a that's, a, that's a shark that qualifies for social security. Like, you have no idea. They live a pretty long time, 50 to 70 years. Now, I'm gonna show you a different shark, okay? This is called a, a Greenland shark. Let's actually put that one up. Not quite as menacing. It kind of looks like a submarine, just very, very strange looking shark. So these sharks live a little bit longer. The oldest recorded Greenland shark uh, was, was actually uh, verified in 2016 to be 400 years old. Now here's what's crazy about that. I love history. I'm like a, a history guy. And so uh, the Mayflower, we all remember learning about the Mayflower in school. You know, pilgrims came over and they had their hats on and they ate turkey and it was all great. Kind of looked like the same pictures of the ark that you saw in churches together. Super happy, but if you know the history, that was not a happy voyage, whatever. Um, Mayflower, 1620. Okay, so the, the 400 year old Greenland shark that they verified in 2016 would have been born in 1616. Meaning that when the Mayflower crossed the Atlantic Ocean, that same exact shark was alive, swimming in the same exact ocean. That's nuts. Is that not crazy just to think about that there's a shark that's been swimming around the ocean for 400 years? Don't go in the ocean, I'm telling you. <laughs> there's actually all kinds of creatures that live incredibly long lifespans. Uh, there's a, a form of, of sea sponge in the Antarctic that scientists believe lives thousands of years. There's a tree in California and it's, it's nicknamed Methuselah and scientists have dated it to be just under, just under 5 
thousand years old. And it's still alive. Okay, so here's what that here's what that tells us. Really simply, things that God creates can live a very long time. They can live a very long time. What determines how long they live? And the truth of the matter is a variety of factors, but the main factor is actually something hardwired into our DNA. If you study this, it's called uh, PCD, Programmed Cell Death. And I'm not trying to make all of us painfully aware of our own mortality. I think it's just really important to to understand what's happening here in Scripture. (coughs) Excuse me, I should have moved my, my face away from the microphone when I did that. Hold on. All right, I hate getting sick. So, PCD, Programmed Cell Death. This is gonna, I'm so sorry I'm talking about this. I just realized I might regret this. Um, no matter how good you eat, no matter how well you, you take care of your body and, and exercise and avoid all kinds of contaminants, one day your body just goes, time to die. And I mean, serious. And what happens is this, this process starts inside of you called programmed cell death and your cells begin dying at a rate faster than they can rebuild. And you begin to age and we die. That's, that's our mortality. And there's, there's just nothing. Scientists are trying to figure out how to extend that. They're trying to create pills and things like that, medicines you can take. I'm not interested in that. Some of you might be. I got some friends that are. I joke about it sometimes. But like, okay, I've watched enough commercials to know that if there's a pill that helps you have a headache, the side effects can be immense. Whatever pill they make that makes you live 100 years longer, I don't even want to know what the side effects of that pill are going to be, okay? Like you're going to grow extra arms. It's going to be weird. Like, but hey, you're older. I'm not interested. But the truth of the matter is there's something inside of us that it's like a switch. It's hardwired into our genetic code. And no matter what, boom. Which is why we don't have a lot of variety in terms of the, the maximum length that we can live. It's just, you look at the oldest living people and it's, there's like a, a line that people just don't go over. And what's really interesting, and this is, again, kind of, I'm, I geek out on this stuff, okay? Genesis chapter six, verse three The Lord said, my spirit will not put up with humans for such a long time, for they are only mortal flesh. In the future, their normal lifespan will be no more than 120 years. Now, this is something God says right before the flood, and there's a little bit in this translation, I'll be honest, there's a little bit of liberty being taken with the translation because the actual language says that their time will be no more than 120 years. Their time will be. And it's about 120 years after that that the flood happens. So you can can interpret this either being that God says 120 years, boom, but... Some people translate this, and it's not wrong, as God saying that the normal human lifespan will become 120 years. If you look up the the longest that people can live, like the oldest confirmed living people in human history that we have, modern human history, with things like records and birth certificates, there's one lady from France that lived 122 years, one. I don't know what she did, right? But there's even a lot of dispute as to whether or not her records are accurate because that's the only person we literally have in, in the history of modern civilization that has lived above 120 years. Every other person, it's 120, 119, 19, 19, 19, 18, 18, 7. It's like no one can hit that, that moment. How crazy is it that something written in the Bible 3,000 years ago would accurately reflect that today? It's, it's, it's nuts. And what that would mean, again, I'm almost done geeking out, so you guys are being so patient, I appreciate it. That would mean that if we used to live about 1,000 years, and then God like, changed things, and now we live about a tenth of that, that we would basically age 10 times faster than the people maybe in Noah's time did. Do I believe that's possible? Well, there's actually a, a genetic disease, a genetic condition, very rare, called progeria. And it's something that very few people are born with, but if you're born with it, you age 10 times faster than a normal human being. So you're eight years old, but your body has aged like an 80-year-old. It's really sad, very rare. And all 
that happens for people born with progeria is that one gene in their DNA, one, one gene has a mutation. That's all it takes, one mutation of a gene and you age 10 times faster. And so when I, when I used to, when I used to battle with this kind of stuff, like when I was in college and I was reading this, and I'm like, oh, I don't want to feel like a fool because I was the kind of guy that would be in debates with people and just talking about the Bible and like jumping into arguments I had no business being in because why not? Um, you know, I, 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 when I learned this stuff, I thought to myself, man, do I believe that God has the power to change one gene in human DNA? And if I don't believe that God has the power to alter one gene of human DNA that can make us go from living a thousand years to to 100 years, like what kind of God is that? And we know that things that have been created can live a very long time, a very long time. And it's just something that's hardwired into to all things in terms of how long they'll live. And apparently, according to scripture, we used to be hardwired to live longer. But instead of it being like we lived a thousand years and look at all the good we could do and look at all the good things we could accomplish, it was like the opposite, that we just got more and more depraved and selfish and wicked and it just got worse and worse and worse. And God is like, ah, I gotta, this has gotta, ah, Got to go shorter, you know? But that's, that's, that's where I came to. That's why I have peace because I had to ask myself, okay, if that's all it takes, if that's all that it takes to alter the length of life, do I believe that I have a God powerful enough to alter one gene in human DNA? And if not, how can I believe in the resurrection? How can I believe in, there's so many miracles in the Bible that are way more intense than one gene being altered. And I believe God is powerful enough to do that. That's why I have peace, okay? Let's move on to the next one. I think it's a bigger stumbling block and it's all the death and destruction of the story of the flood. Like how many of you believe in a loving God? Like a God who, like we sing about it, right? We sing all the time about how God loves us. Like, like oh, how he loves us. I'm not gonna sing it. I'm gonna sort of sing it. You know the song, oh, how he loves us. It's not, oh, how he floods us. Oh, how he floods. You know, it's not that. That's a less exciting song, Right? But we've all grown up in this culture of, of God and love, and that's accurate because the Bible actually says there's only two things that God is, not things that God does. The Bible says God is holy, meaning he is other, greater, better, different, and he is love. In fact, in the Old Testament, the number one thing used to describe God, the number one attribute used to describe God in the Old Testament is kindness. It's kindness. I mean, even, even in the story of Noah, he's like, man, these people drive me crazy. I'm gonna give him 120 years. That's it, just 120 years, not 10 minutes. God is, is so clearly described in scripture as a God of love and mercy and kindness and grace. And yet we have stories like this and they become a bit of a problem. And maybe you've never had that, but many people do. And I think if we're gonna be the kind of people who not only have a strong relationship with God, but we might be able to help other people develop that, we've gotta have answers to some of these questions. I wanna treat this stuff seriously because this series, The Human Project, it's about understanding who we are and who God is. So let's talk about this for a second. I wanna start with this, this basic idea, okay? And then we're gonna get back to the big picture and we'll wrap it up. I promise it's not all just boring history stuff. It's just a lot of it today. All right. God is, is often misunderstood. I wanna start with that. He's so misunderstood. And it just depends on where you happen to be living in, in history, what it is about God that you don't understand. So for example, in Jesus' day, they did not have a hard time at all with the idea of a judgmental God who's gonna make things right because they were oppressed people and the world was brutal compared to what it is today. I mean, just brutal. And so in, in fact, they, they were yearning and longing for a time when God would make things right and he would be just and good. They put all their hope in, in the idea of a just God. 
So they expected Jesus, the Messiah, to be like vengeful, to, to be like this leader that would be like, hey, it's time to pick up your swords, let's go. Great example of this. In Luke chapter nine, this is a story of some of Jesus' disciples. It says, the people of the village did not welcome Jesus because he was on his way to Jerusalem. They didn't welcome him. These people said, no, you can't be here. We don't like you. Here's the response from his disciples, James and John. They say to Jesus, hey, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven to burn them up? <laughs> Jesus turned and rebuked them. So they went on to another village. Like, that's just the expectation that James and John have. They're like, hey, you're God. And these people, like, you're the Messiah. They didn't accept you. Like, boom, fire, right? They did not have a hard time with the idea of a just God making things right when things are wrong in the world. That was easy for them. The idea of mercy and grace and forgiveness that's undeserved, that was a problem. I mean, if you ever read the story of, of Jonah in the Old Testament, Jonah's this prophet, he's sent to a place called Nineveh. Nineveh's a bad place. And he's supposed to preach that they need to turn around and change their ways or else. And he does, and they do. And Jonah's furious about it. He's like, God, no, God, you're supposed to destroy them. I was just like giving a warning, like it's just a warm up, and then you're gonna do your thing and destroy him. And instead the people repent and they're like, we're, we're sorry, we're gonna change our ways. And God's like, I'm so proud of you guys. And Jonah's like, no. Because <laughs> he didn't understand mercy and grace and forgiveness. Jesus surprised so many people with his mercy and his grace. And so in Jesus' day, everyone's totally okay with the idea of an angry God or a God who's gonna like make things right. But it's the idea of, of love and forgiveness and mercy that throws them off. And now here we are, thousands of years later, and because of Jesus, I'm, I'm being honest, because of Jesus and the impact that he has made on this world and the fact that because of him, things like forgiveness and love and mercy and meekness have actually become celebrated human qualities when they never were before Jesus. That was weakness. Now Jesus has made it strength. Now we have a really easy time with grace and mercy, with undeserved love and, and things like that. We, we're fine with that. We don't read stories in the Bible and get mad like that Jesus was nice to those people. We have a really hard time with the stuff that they used to be comfortable with, the stories of judgment and justice. That's harder for us. So we have to understand that, that God has always been misunderstood. It just depends on what era you're living in, what it is about him that you misunderstand. We have a tendency to have a harder time understanding judgment than we do mercy, but it used to be the opposite. So that's part of it. I think another part of it is we have to just understand this. We have a tendency as people to believe, especially when we read stories like this in the Bible, that God is overreacting. Like, have you ever believed that God is overreacting when you've read a story in the Bible? Be honest, anyone else but me, I'll say it, I did it. God's not gonna strike you with lightning, I don't think. I'm not sure, but you're ready to raise your hand. You're good. The re none of the rest of you have. Mm. I don't believe you. It's easy for us to read stories like that and be like, God, I mean, man, chill out just a little bit. I used to think that, like God seems to just a little much, but we don't, often, we don't really often stop and consider whether or not maybe we just underestimate sin. Like it's easy to think God is overreacting to sin. It's hard to imagine that maybe as people, we just underestimate it. Maybe we don't really understand what it really is, how serious it actually is. Like how wicked could things have been on the earth at that time for God to take those measures? I'm gonna speed up a little bit because I'm looking at the clock and I love you. Um, you know, there's lots of stories in the Bible where people are doing really terrible things and, and God's like, no, I'll, I'll, 
I'll show mercy. We know from scripture that it takes a lot, like a lot to bring God to a place where destruction is deemed necessary. And, and I think the closest example we might even have to this in our own understanding in, in history would be something like Nazi Germany. Uh, if, if you go to my YouTube page, like at home, we have YouTube on our TV, I, I, I watch YouTube. And uh, it's like, the algorithm is really weird for me because it, it sees what you watch and it predicts it. So if you ever go to my house for some weird reason, you're in my house, you're in my room, you turn on my TV, turn on YouTube, you're like, Justin, what is wrong with you? Uh, here's, here's what you're gonna see, is recommendations. It'll be like, NBA highlight videos, documentaries about Nazis. It's like, I love history and I got on this kick a few months ago of like watching a lot of World War II like documentaries on YouTube and now they get recommended all the time and I just keep watching them. And I've learned all kinds of things. Like I, I thought I understood World War II history really well because I love that era of history. It's fascinating. But uh, okay, did you guys know that thousands of Nazis escaped Germany? Not like 10, not like a few dudes on a boat. Thousands. And most of them went to Argentina and to like Chile and they created, there's like, there's German speaking villages in the mountains of South America. It's crazy, right? So, so here's, here's the way this unfolds. This is like a part of history I hadn't really studied as much was the aftermath of World War II and for the next 30 years, how people were like unrelenting and hunting these people down and bringing them to justice because it wasn't like, oh, they got away. Oh, well, the war's over, moving on. People are like, no, 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 we will find them. We will find them all. Like every single one of them. You know, the last, the last Nazi that was arrested and convicted was actually in December of this last year. It was a 97-year-old woman. 97-year-old woman who had been uh, a part of the staff at a concentration camp that 65,000 people were murdered at. And she knew about it. And she had escaped and avoided justice. And then at 97 years old, they're like, oh, wait, oh, you're that person. Well, no one went... I mean, guys, let's be honest. Like, do you think they would have been like, well, you're 97. Oh, well. Like, would that have been right? No, even it's hard to think. They were like, well, you're under arrest. And, and she got convicted and she'll spend the rest of her days under house arrest. It's different how it works at that age where she lives. But like, I don't hear that and go, well, that's wrong. Because I know to whatever degree it's possible to know, I know how evil that was. And so it, it doesn't bother me that like, yeah, someone went out and found that person and, and brought them to justice. That needed to be done. I don't recommend watching all those documentaries. They're a little hard to watch, but if you do, YouTube will keep recommending them. And there's a lot of them. Okay. So just be careful. But I think it's easy for us. It's kind of an obvious example, but it's easy for us to look at evil that deep and go, yeah, that had to be stopped. And that couldn't just be allowed to go, oh, well, it's just in South America now. We'll just leave it alone. They're like, no, no, we will find them. We'll bring them to justice. And we would hear that and go, yeah, that's, yes. Because when something's that evil, it has to be stopped. When we read stories like this in the Old Testament, like the flood, before we get all mad at God and go, God, you're overreacting. It's not that big of a deal. Maybe we should stop and go, how bad must it have been? Like how wicked could it have actually been for God to look at it and for it to break his heart and make him regret that he'd ever even created humanity? And there's things that people were doing that God actually says in scripture, I never even imagined you would do this. I never even imagined it. You know, child sacrifice was a major component of those ancient cultures. And God actually says in scripture, I never even fathomed you doing this to children. I'm not saying this to make anyone feel uncomfortable. It's just, it's in scripture. And we're going through it this year. 
And so when we read stories like this and they make us uncomfortable, we've got to stop and realize maybe God isn't overreacting to sin. Maybe, maybe we just underestimate it. And if we could see what God really sees, if we could maybe stop for a moment and go, maybe God sees it right. Maybe he sees it best. We would go, okay. Maybe he actually handles it the exact right way. And what we do know is that it breaks his heart to do it. It breaks his heart. In Genesis 8, 21, he says, I will never again curse the ground because of the human race. Even though everything they think or imagine is bent toward evil from childhood, I'll never again destroy all living things. He makes that commitment after the flood. It's a tough story. You got really, really old people doing really, really bad things. And God puts a stop to it. But here's where I wanna, wanna end on, because I know a lot of this today was like weird details and what in the world is this even all about and why did I come to church this morning? I know why you came to church, because you love Jesus. Um, but let me, let me explain what this story really reminds me about, because I may, have, I may have misrepresented something earlier when I said that we have to be careful looking at small pieces of the story and not getting the wrong ideas. I actually think that the story of Noah and the flood is an amazing image of the big picture of God. I really do. I actually think it's an unbelievable reminder of why we should be so blessed and grateful that God is our God and the God and the only God. I wanna go back to the puzzle for this, okay? This puzzle, is, it's tough for me in many ways because I thought it was a success. Y'all ever buy something for someone that you thought was just a knockout home run? You're like, they're gonna love it and then turns out, not so much. That was this puzzle. I was so, when Megan opened it this Christmas, I was like, I was, no, 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 Megan's, her reaction was great. Don't, it's all good. Megan and I, we're good. We have a great marriage, everything's great. Um, <laughs> it's all good. But, I don't know if you guys saw the number right here. So I was on eBay, and I saw this, where I, I found this. I was looking for puzzles, and I was like, she would love a puzzle, and I saw a 5,000-piece puzzle. Now, I've never put a 5,000-piece puzzle together. Have any of you ever put a 5,000-piece puzzle together? You know what I'm about to talk about then. Okay, ma'am. So I've seen Megan put a 2,000 piece puzzle together before and I encouraged her. I was like, you can do it. You know, that's what I did. Because uh, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I run a church. It's close enough. Um, so, so like, but I, like two, I didn't, 5,000, how much different is that than 2,000? Turns out. Right, let me show you guys this. So I took this video a couple days into the puzzle thing happening, you know. So there it is again. There's our 5,000-piece beautiful bookstore puzzle, and we are going to put it together uh, in the dining room of the house. Turns out our dining room table wasn't big enough, so we had to get a piece of pegboard because the finished size of it is six feet by four feet. Six feet by four feet, okay? Those are all the extra pieces. So, so we get our dining room table, we push it to the side, we put all the pieces on it, we had to get an extra table, a four foot by eight foot piece of pegboard, lay that out with a sheet on it, and that's what we started building on, and this was our dining room for a month. And it got further than what you saw. I put together four pieces, I'm not exaggerating. <laughs> like I would sit and I would have all these, I would, I, at first I was so confident, I was so like, I'm gonna do this, we're gonna bond. She's gonna look at me and she's gonna say, Look how cute that guy is, putting pieces of a puzzle together. Instead, I would just get these pieces that would all look like they fit, 
they all have the same little component. I look at the, the big picture, but like, like this book right here, it was, it was 25 pieces just for that, that book. That's how, that's how like zoomed in everything is. And I would just sit there and like just helpless. Like I lost tons of points, no attraction gained in our marriage. Megan would look at me and I'm like, they don't, I don't know what to do. And so there came a point, it was really sad actually, it was really sad. It was like we had about half done I would say, we meaning totally Megan. And we just said, we, we just can't, it's not worth it. It's not, this is not, it's not, we need, we need our dining room back, right? And so here it all is. It's all in there. I even asked her when you put it back in, I'm like, did you at least like put all the corner pieces in a bag and keep them together so that if we do it in the future, it's like, we're never gonna do this. It's not gonna happen. And, and here's, here's what I mean by this. And this is where I want you to remember this when it comes to the story of the flood. And even if everything we've talked about so far has been kind of random, I believe this is true with all my heart. This was so difficult, so much more than we bargained for, that we decided at one point in time, it's just not worth it. Let's just throw it away. Let's just, let's just be done with it. It's not worth the effort. It's not worth the trouble. And it looks at the beginning of the flood story that that's what God is about to do. But he doesn't. He doesn't say toward humanity, they're just not worth it. They're just, their, their capacity for evil is so high. They're so difficult. They don't listen. They don't obey. It doesn't matter what I say, what I do. It doesn't matter. I put them in a garden. They messed it up. I gave them very simple instructions. They messed it up. I gave them extreme warnings and and told them exactly what's gonna happen. They messed it up. God, God doesn't get to this point with us where he says they're not worth it. He doesn't do that with us. I almost called this series the human experiment. That just sounded, um, I don't know. Actually, thinking about it, that'd be be really bad. Um, But, but I changed it to the human project because it, it hit me like we're not an experiment to God. We're not. He's committed to us. We are his human project. And no matter how difficult, how troublesome, how hard we might be, he doesn't quit on us. God does not quit on us. Philippians 1.6, Paul wrote, I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. Hebrews 12 says, let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates, who starts, and who perfects or finishes our faith. Jesus is the one who starts it and he's the one who finishes it. He will finish whatever he starts within you, meaning that you are never going to be a puzzle that God decides is not worth solving. You're never gonna be that in his eyes. It also means that like our nation is never gonna be that. Our world is never gonna be that. That God doesn't look at the world and he doesn't look at humanity and just go, I'm done. Now he messes with it. He has every right as a just God to do whatever he decides is right, but he never ever quits on people. And that's what the story of Noah should remind us. That maybe even if he ought to, Maybe even if logically he should, he loves people so much that he will not throw us away. He will not quit on us. And the story of the flood tells us that God will never, ever, ever quit his human project. 
And that's what we see happen through the rest of scripture. It's like God gets really close early on and he's like, oh, I'm gonna box it all back up. I'm done. But he decides, no. No, I'm gonna keep going. And he takes this family and he rescues them and he restarts with them and he spends the rest of the pages of scripture committed to enduring with us no matter what we do, no matter how hard we make it. And he doesn't stop. And so as we wrap up today, worship team, you guys can come back out. We're gonna take Lord's Supper. I wanna thank you guys for being here today. I would be a liar if I didn't say that there have been times in my life that I thought God might quit on me. I would be a liar if I said that there weren't times that I was tempted to quit on other people. Like, have you ever just wanted to quit people in general? Like, some of us, like, yeah. The story of the flood teaches us that God doesn't quit. So much so that the extent he decides to go to to see his project through to the end is Jesus dying on the cross for us, which is the furthest you can get from an angry God full of wrath and judgment. Instead, it's a merciful God who self-sacrifices to save us from our own sin. And so with that in mind, let's take the bread and the juice Let's reflect on this, this God who doesn't quit on people, but who instead will go to the greatest length possible to save us and to rescue us from the sin that we've created in our own lives. So Father, we thank you for this piece of bread. Lord, I thank you. I thank you, Lord, for deciding that instead of pouring out floodwaters, to wipe away the earth because of just how, how horrible and evil it can be. You decided instead to pour out mercy and grace through the life and the death and the resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. Lord, as we take this bread, we just wanna say that we're grateful for what you've done for us, for this demonstration that you don't quit on us, that you'll give anything and everything to know us. Let's take the bread. Lord, we thank you for this juice and for what it represents. Your blood spilled for us, your blood poured out to cover us and not to cover us the way that the earth was covered with the flood, but to cover us in a cleansing sense. You cover our sins, you cover our struggles, you cover our shame. You love us so much. Help us receive this with gratitude, understanding who you are, Lord. Let's take the juice. Practically speaking, this week, never forget that God doesn't quit on you. And he doesn't quit on anyone else either. And so when you're tempted to be angry, lose hope, throw, discard, reject, whoever you feel like rejecting away, just remember the story of Noah, the story of a God who even when he has good reason will not quit on people because we are his human project and he's gonna see us through to the end. He is the one who initiates and perfects our faith. Remember that this week. All right, guys, I love you all. We'll see you guys next Sunday. Thank you so much for being here. Have an awesome, awesome week.